This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is songwriter, producer, and drummer Simon Phillips. Simon is another one of those guests that needs very little introduction. The arc of his career covers so much time and stylistic ground that any of us, no matter what our interests or age, has a Simon Phillips story. Mine involved watching his DCI video on a loop in the 90s and being fascinated with his open hand technique and fluid bass chops. A few of his career highlights include working with Judas Priest, Jeff Beck, Pete Townsend, his years with Toto, and many of his solo and compositional endeavors. Most recently, his anticipated release, Protocol 5, is due out February 4th of this year, 2022. Check it out. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash working drummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. I think one of the things that fascinates me about Simon Phillips is his consistency of sound and tone. You hear it from early in his career, those recordings of the 70s, just his performance, the way he plays, uh, you automatically know who it is. And just this consistency of sound throughout these many decades, uh, I'm not sure where that comes from. We try and unpack that a little bit, uh, but it's also fascinating to find out about his father's influence and some of the things in his life that I, I believe are very unique to someone like Simon. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Simon Phillips. able to compose Mm -hmm. even before I knew really what I was doing Um, the the, the thing that really held me back was I never went to school, I never went to a music school Uh, There's the main reason for that is I was too busy working Yeah, because I started working when I was 12 years old so I certainly got out of the habit of going to school very early on Uh, I, I think any child of that age would be able to do that very quickly if they've got something else to do that's important um 
but I, I think the, the, the age that I would have done that would have been, you know, 17, 18, 19 in those days, especially going, going to a college or music school. Um, I, I was out in the big wide world by then. And from 16, I was doing sessions in London. Yeah. You know, so that was, I turned 16 in, um, let me think about this, 73. Uh, that's when I started, 74. I, uh, I, oh, 73, and I, you know, joined Jesus Christ Superstar. And it was really through doing that show in London that I started getting session work. Right. It was just an, uh, 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 a situation of the uh, era. We didn't have drum machines. Most people didn't have a tape recorder. Um, so the only way to get a demo was to go to a demo studio. We had pro studios and we had demo studios because demo studios were our old version of having, you know, garage band on your computer. Yeah. Really. You know, you needed people. That was always the great thing about back then. You needed other people. You couldn't play the other instruments. So you hired a small studio of which there were many back then, four track, eight track. Most of them were four track actually back then. And you hired, you didn't hire the London session guys. You couldn't afford them. Right. So, and everybody back then was, was busy, you know, that because that was the only way music could be made. Um, so you hired kind of the younger up and coming, you know, not so good players, but they're people that wanted to get going with their careers. And so that's what happened. I happened to be exceptionally young. And so uh, somebody from the show would say, you know, would you do a session with me? You obviously you know, no, I can read music and play, you know, because yeah. I've been doing a show. Uh, and I would turn up at 16 years old, my little Ludwig, you know, four-piece kit, and I'd meet the bass player for the first time. They're all older than me most of them all in their 20s, if not 30s. And uh, that's how it all started. So I didn't have time to go to a music school. But on the other hand, there were no music schools. Right, right. There was only, as far as I know, the uh, Royal College of Music in London. And drums was not accepted as a musical instrument. And you had to play two instruments. So you had to be like, you know, trombone player and double on sax or piano or something like that. Yeah. A lot of the people I ended up working with and, and, and meeting at sessions, especially keyboard players, they all went to the Royal College of Music. Wow. You know, so there was no school to go to. Um, they hadn't really started. The only real schools, that they weren't really schools, was like Niger, which is the National Youth, National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Okay. But that playing experience, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. So, so that, not having learnt the theory of music, that's what held me up. I didn't know how to do it. I'd been playing piano for a long time, very badly, but, you know, so that, you know, and I used to get, get a chart, you know, of a favourite song and then learn how to play it. So it was, it was quite a slow development. Um, the first, I would say, time that I actually wrote something in a studio was on a Duncan Brown session. Duncan Brown was a wonderful artist, uh, guitarist, classical guitarist, actually, but electric as well, and singer. He actually wrote a song for David Bowie. 
David Bowie covered one of the Here's in a Band called Metro. So, uh, and I don't remember what the song was, but I used to do his albums from 1978, 79. And I just happened to be playing, messing around on the piano in the studio. We had some time. I came up with this thing and he said, that's really cool. Let's do it. And I ended up playing it actually. On the piano? On the piano, on the recording. I was like, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> you know, did <laughs> a but it was fine, you know, um, and that became um, the uh, kind of the intro to one of the tunes, which we kind of co-wrote. And I'd have to, when I say co-wrote, I'd say I kind of sing something, sing a riff, you know. Yeah. And I came up with a time signature. It was a weird time signature. And uh, then he got it down. And, and so that was maybe the first time I had a... Um, piece of music actually breach a record okay and 1979 so in, how does composing inform your drumming and now like currently in since i guess what 1988 or 89 when you were started doing more intentional compositions for your own records and how has that influenced your drumming or how has drumming influenced your composing Actually, probably not that much. Yeah. They're, they're two separate things. Um, the All the sessions that I've done, especially in those days, taught me how to play music. That's the thing. I, I often say I actually learned how to play music more than I learned how to play drums because I wasn't very technical. Uh, I mean, I, I really enjoyed all the technical playing stuff and learning about it. But when I went to work, that wasn't about technique at all. And I think the difference between myself and a lot of drummers my age, um, you know, Steve Smith, Vinny, um, uh, uh, blanking here, I mean, uh, uh, amazing player, Dave Weckl, he's a little younger than me, um, uh, Dennis Chambers, um, I think in America it was much more of a technical side because they all went to, a lot of them went to Berkeley, and they were often interacting with other drummers at school and when they were growing up, so they were really into the technical side of it. I didn't even know all the rudiments, I hate to say. Um, but what I could do at a very young age was turn up to a studio, get a sound, and play a song. Right. Whether it a, a chart which I could do or whether it be just listening to the song and playing it I learned really how to play songs and how to play music so that influenced the way I write music sure sure I uh, I don't even touch a drum kit when I'm writing I know there's there's drummers that put out solo records or they put out these records and sometimes as a drummer, I appreciate that, but if I want to listen to something that's mu you know, more musically inclined, it's sometimes difficult to listen to. I, I'm, I'm probably not describing that the best way I could, but uh, it's a very drummy drum thing where uh, you there's other areas where you can hear just like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing music, I'm hearing great things uh, that anyone, even a non-drummer, can appreciate. Yeah, well, it's it's the lack of knowledge of harmony, uh, how how to make a melody work, counterpoint, or all of these things, which 
you might say now somebody listening might say, well, hang on, you didn't go to school to learn this. So how do you know about any of that stuff? <laughs> I've had to learn and pick it up by listening uh, since I was doing all these sessions. Right. But that taught me about how a baseline works with uh, a certain piece of music. You know, um, I'd like to go back a little bit to where uh, I really started writing, especially a particular style, was with Jeff Beck. Yes. We played together in 1978. And the first thing I did with Jeff after I'd met him was do a couple of um, rehearsals down at his house. But he immediately booked me for a recording session with uh, Jan Hammer. Mm. Jan had written a few compositions and we went into Rampal Studios, which they asked me actually to recommend a studio. And oh, and at that time, I was trying to think what would be a great rock and roll studio uh, as opposed to like the BBC or EMI or Air Studios, which are, I call those days very straight studios. That's where you did film dates, that's where you did jingles. Um, but you also did records as well. But um, they were, they had a canteen. Okay. And they were very strict. And some of the, and the engineers, well, actually some of the engineers still wore ties and a, and a collar. It was George Martin was uh, the owner of Air. Uh, Ray Davis was, uh, I think it's Ray Davis. Is it Ray Davis? <sighs> oh, gosh, I can't remember his name. Bruce Pitfall. D- Davis. But Davis was the studio manager, always wore suit and tie. Um, and in a break, if you go up to the canteen, it's just full of orchestral players having their tea and cakes. And, you know, that's not the right vibe for a studio for Jeff Beck. No, he's used to more rugged, you know, rock and roll players. So at the time, to me, Ramport was the ultimate rock and roll studio because that was that was Pete Townsend's studio. Okay. And, it, you know, dark lighting, dark wood and cool uh, 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 control room and uh, pinball machine and because mm-hmm. pinball wizard, you know, space invaders. Uh, it was much more rock and roll, you know. There wasn't a tie. It, a tie it was something you tie someone up with, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, forgive the pun. <laughs> but um, so that was the the idea of working in a rock and roll studio. And uh, he, they, then they said, well, who do you uh, recommend as engineering? And I was like, wow. And, I, you know, obviously I've worked with a lot of engineers. Uh, I said, I think John Punter, who was an Air Studios engineer, but he kind of got my favorite drum sounds. Mm-hmm. And the thing about recording, everything is important. Every instrument is very important to record. But one of the most difficult instruments to record is the drum kit. And that's because there are so many different parts of it, you know. So um, some people do it very well and some people do it not so very well. Um, So that was the start, was working on Jeff's album. And then during rehearsals, after I'd uh, introduced him to Tony Hymas, because we had played together quite a lot with Jack Bruce and Sessions and stuff, I realized, hang on a minute, Jeff doesn't write music. He's not a composer. Yeah, I, I recently learned that. That was that was a bit of a surprise. So, and that's when I I said to Tony, I rang him up and said, Tony, we got to write music for him. And I said, I I know what the kind of music he needs. Very bullshit, maybe, but I really did because I'd worked with him enough with Yarn to know what kind of 
groove it is. It's a heavy rock element in jazz in jazz composition, you know, because yeah. he loves complicated chords, what we call adult chords, <laughs> but m- melodic as well. Mm-hmm. Got to have a great melody, uh, and it has to groove in a very rock and roll sense, you know. Um, so. Uh, I just said to Tony, I said, come on, let's get together. And uh, that's really how it started. And Tony's obviously, you know, I mean, I'm not going to sit. I mean, I might actually play him a couple of chords to say, well, here's a sequence. And he'll go, uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Into real adult chords, you know. Um, but, the, but the gem of the idea was there. So we wrote a song called The Pump, yeah. and uh, which I had even thought of before getting to his house. I knew what it what it should be, groove wise, uh, and one note, eighth notes on the bass, and then let him come up with some couple of chords, very simple, very very bluesy actually, and then with the melody we both kind of went backwards and forwards, and and then we had the pump, yeah, uh, bass boogie of course, yeah, uh, to do something a boogie in seven. I just we started playing it in uh, a rehearsal with Jet with Jeff. A jam really wasn't a rehearsal, it was just like a play, you know. And just for fun, I started turning the beat around, so it ended up in seven. I was going to say, like, how did that, how did that, I have that actually in my notes, because that's one of my Uh, favorite tracks off that record. Um, (laughs) I mean, I I never really counted it out, and then when I was listening to that record again last week in preparation for our conversation, I was like, okay, i got to figure this out. So that's in seven. Right, so the, the, the backstory to that is uh, I used to take a little Ludwig kit down to Jeff's house, just put it in the car, and, it, and that was one bass drum, two rack toms, a floor tom, and a few cymbals, you know? And he had a little premiere kit in the corner. And, you know, I was starting to get a little bit bored. I, I wanted to have another bass drum, so we had a little tea break, and I dragged the premiere kit over and put it together, kind of made it into a quasi-double kit, so it had... He only had one tom, so it was like three rack toms and two floors, and but at least I had two bass drums. I don't think I had a hi-hat clamp, so the hi-hat was a little bit wide, you know, because it had... And so I was starting, and then I just started playing a, a shuffle, as in Billy Cobham's Quadrant 4, you know, which I think um, once every drummer heard that, that's the first thing they wanted to play. I mean, what an amazing groove, you know. And also, it's uh, you're not really quite sure how he's playing it. That's the other thing. So, but eventually I kind of figured it out. And then, and Jeff, so, so we're playing this boogie and I just started turning the beat round. Yeah. You know, every seven beats. And he caught on to that and started phrasing now in seven. And, and I went, oh, that's really cool. And I went to Tony, I went, I've got our next song. And I, and then we, we got together and I said, all right, remember that, that beat? the double uh, double kick beat the, in seven. He went, oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, right, here's our next tune. And then we just started playing on it, and then he kind of went, hang on a minute. And he came up with that intro on a, it was an ARP 2600, or was it a profit? Hmm. Now, see, that's where the memory gets a little foggy. <laughs> I've been the profit, but I'm not even sure he had a profit at that moment. Mm, oh gosh, I'd have to ask him. It kind of sounds a little profity though. Uh, anyway, he came up with that. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're going down a half step. Um, 
And that was it. And I came in. Mind you, I have to tell you, when we composed it, it was much slower. Much as often they are. It really was quite, you know. And the first recording of that, Jeff loved it, of course. Um, and then we came up with that. And uh, the piece at the end in six, uh, I came up with. I said, let's do this as our kind of release, you know, with the chords and, you know. Um, and we played it. We recorded it in Maison Rouge Studios, which was Ian Anderson's studio from Jethro Tull. Oh, wow. And we got Rick Laird over from New York to play on it, mm. who sadly just passed away. And he was the original bass player of the Mad Vision Orchestra. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and now, sadly, I don't know where, <clears throat> I lost all my cassettes in the fire. So uh, that's gone. I heard, Everybody. like, what, 2017, 2018 was when you lost your house? Yeah. Oh. So, and, you know, I mean, well, <laughs> amongst other things, but what was really sad was losing those rehearsal cassettes from, ooh, going back to 1974. You know, awful sound, but you could still hear them. Right, right. Wow. That's... Just having boxes, waiting to... I, uh, you know, I'd actually just move them from storage up to where, you know, my house, which had a kind of a storage, um, it was like a shed, you know, but it was big and it had shelves. So I moved everything because I wanted to have it. I didn't want to have to get in the car all the time to go and grab a cassette or a dat or, or look at photos, you know, or grab something. So sadly, all of those live recordings, so many gigs, you know, but anyway. Um, I'm not the only one, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have lost the same. Right. right. But, um, that first recording of Space Boogie was obviously much slower, but with Rick Laird on bass. Wow. And then eventually, you know, we recorded it at EMI Studios, everybody knows as Abbey Road, uh, with Mo Foster on bass. Okay. Foster. (laughs) (laughs) And then we did two other songs, uh, The Golden Road, which is actually the first song that Tony and I wrote together. It was a ballad, really. Um, And El Beco, which I I started on bass, actually. It was a Stanley Clark type uh, using using fifths, you know. Uh, it was kind of like a school days thing, but in a more rock and roll way. You know? I was thinking, it, it, it's funny when you say that it, school days is the instant sound that everyone, it comes to mind with that just club uh, I mean, brilliant, absolutely brilliant, you know. Yeah. And I'd learned to play school days on bass, you know, very badly. But because <clears throat> I'd played with Stanley for quite a long time, so I played that song every night. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he and Stanley was very influential uh, to me at that time. Um, I mean, absolutely amazing, what incredible musician, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that was the inspiration, actually, for El Beco. Yeah. And Tony had written this whole intro piece with the melody and everything, which is absolutely gorgeous. And then we get into this, this rock groove and that's where the, the bass part comes in. Do, do, blah, blah, do, 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 do. And it's like a three bar phrase, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so they were really the first compositions, um, in terms of writing them, not in the studio and suggesting bits, just sitting at home, uh, with Tony, with a Revox tape machine and, um, coming up with stuff and that's really where that style which became more protocol like um really came from 
So to unpack some of this stuff, I mean, this is 1978, you're around 20, 21 years old. But before that, so people understand, you started working with your father at around, what, 12 years old? Well, I, my first show that I did with him was in September of 69. I don't remember the actual date, but I, I know it would have been around towards the end of September, probably. Yeah. And, and what was it about that experience with your father through those years that kind of gave you the skills to think like a musician first and a drummer second, if you will, to, I know you've mentioned before, like, I learned to play music. I did not learn to play drums. I learned to play music. Yeah. What was it about your experience with your father that is one of the strongest takeaways for you that maybe you carry with you today? Um, is to be an accompanying musician and also the discipline of playing only what is necessary for the song. So with his band, everything was written out. Everybody had a chart. And the charts had to be played exactly. That's the difference. If there, if I played a cymbal crash and there wasn't a cymbal crash written, he'd say, why did you play a cymbal? Oh, was it written? Uh, bar 26, is there a cymbal crash? Uh, no. Oh, all right. <laughs> I mean, it's literally like that, you know. Um, it was more about he didn't care how you played it or um, the technique of it. He just wanted it to sound right with the band. He didn't want it too busy. He didn't want too many cymbals because he grew up in, a, in an era where drummers didn't really have cymbals. They didn't have a ride cymbal. You know, it was all snare drum, you know. So it was Dixieland style... Sorry? Was it Dixieland style? Dixieland style, but it wasn't freeform Dixieland. It was very heavily arranged Dixieland. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just clarinet, trumpet, and trombone. He had uh, a tenor player and an alto player as well. And the alto player would double on baritone. Mm -hmm. So you really had a five-piece front line. We used to call them the front line in, in those. Um, from uh, the left-hand side of the stage, you'd have trombone. Then you'd have trumpet. Then you'd have, ooh, ooh, alto, baritone, and then tenor, and then he would play on the on the on the stage right, uh, clarinet. Um, so it was very heavily arranged. And listening to his arrangements now, I mean, stunning um, how he makes the piano. Because remember, these are charts that have to be played absolutely e exactly. And musicians were used to doing that back then because of the big band days. You know, there's a time to improvise, sure, but when you're playing the tune, it's got to be bang on right. to, because that's the way the arranger wants it. I could see how he's using the piano to fill out the horns, you know, mm -hmm. to make it sound like there may be two trumpets, you know, mm -hmm. or maybe another sax, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, in the studio, he would always add uh, a separate baritone player. So he'd be alto, tenor, baritone with clarinet on top. You know, and he'd use the piano, just the core, the voicing of the piano to really fill the sound. It was very, uh, it was an amazing arranger, really was, you know. Of course, at the time, I didn't appreciate it, but much later, many years later, I go, wow, that's pretty, you know, pretty stunning. Regardless if you like the style of music or not, you know, it's these days, I mean, it does sound, of course, it sounds very old fashioned, but 
it was very cool. But what he wanted from the drama was groove and accuracy mm-hmm. and, uh, and great time. So he was always on me about time. Mm. That was the thing I really learned. And not overplaying, playing the music. That's where that came from. So what is your experience with teachers growing up or any type of formal study? You mentioned uh, you mentioned in another interview that like you were doing sessions, you didn't even know what a paradiddle was. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I really only had one drum teacher and that was a, a guy that used to play in my dad's band uh, before the war and, and a little bit after too. His name is Max Abrams. A lot of British drummers in the 60s and 70s went to him. Phil Collins went to him. Uh, I'm sure countless others did too. He taught me how to read music. He didn't really sit there and show you paradiddle. He just had a tape recorder, put a chart up, started the tape and he played his very moldy old premier drum kit and then he went downstairs and read the paper (laughs) i mean and if you stopped he'd come up why do you stop well because i can't read music well that's what you're here to learn so just read it you know it was it was pretty rough yeah um but he never really taught me any uh technique uh and i never went to anyone else i learned my technique from listening to Louis Belson, Buddy Rich, Sonny Payne, you know, you name it. Um, <clears throat> Kenny Clare, Kenny Clark. Um, and then slowly I got into rock and roll quite late, actually. Uh, Danny Serafin, Chicago, absolutely loved Danny's playing. Um, Bobby Columbi, Blood, Sweat and Tears. Uh, Keith Hartley, who's a British, British blues drummer. Uh, John Heisman. Coliseum, and that's where I started getting into the technique of stuff. And I went, Shit, I really need to do this. I only had one drum book, and that was Max Abrams' book. And I would open it, find the paradiddle, and you know. But uh, that particular point was not sessions. That was actually much earlier. It was with my dad, and I was setting up my drum kit, and there was another band on the bill, a support band, and the drummer came up, and. Uh, said to me, oh, setting, and he had, he wore this silly cap, I remember that, and uh, he said, oh, we're setting, setting up your dad's drum kit, huh? <laughs> and I went, no, I'm setting up my drum kit, and I was probably 13, right? Yeah. I said, oh, really? <laughs> so you're playing? I said, yes, I'm the drummer. And he kind of laughed and went off and came back. I hadn't unpacked the whole kit yet, so my stick bag wasn't out. He came back with a pair of sticks, and my stool was was set up you know and he said play me a paradiddle um i don't know what a paradiddle is (laughs) and he took the sticks he he went away laughing anyway they played their set i can't remember if he he probably used my drum kit because that's usually how it went i think i can't remember that and uh but then we came out and started playing and i noticed him in the wings going still with a silly cap on, going, huh? Huh? Wow. You you can't even play a paradiddle yet. And he's probably seeing lots of them, but I probably didn't realize, you know. So I had to really start getting into technique uh, kind of late, and I really had to kickstart myself. Um, And that's why, it's probably why I don't have the kind of technique, the, the blistering technique that a lot of drummers do, you know. I mean, I think the way deeper and faster and you know than i am um but it's uh i would say probably 
I mean, I used to play along to Buddy Rich, so that would be very technical. Um, 72, 73, and when I started listening to Billy Cobham, I went, oh, shit, now I've really got to, you know. So that's when I really started, like, you know, practicing on a pad and on a, the sofa, um, you know, to really start getting working on that stuff, you know. I think what's amazing is we're talking about a time obviously pre-internet, pre-YouTube, uh, yeah. just the, the where you were at and seeing the technique that you have. I, I, you, you downplay it, but gosh, watching even, just just watching even more recent videos and, and different things, that you, it, it's just, it's mind-boggling to me because we've had Dave Elich on a couple times and, and, and more recently we, we had him on and he always talks about how getting started on the drums is a very easy for lots of people. It's one of those instruments where you can play a basic groove in a very short amount of time. And then you're like, cool, I play drums. But learning your story and seeing the end results of, of your technique and your ability to play, it just, it blows my mind. It's like, how is it that you just you go by those records and and this one book to develop this technique, or do you feel like I just chose wisely? This may not be the right answer or the, or the, the, the answer you're looking for, but uh, in terms of health and being able to sustain a level of playing for many many years without having uh, problems, uh, physical problems. Um, so first of all, back in the in the fifties and sixties, probably earlier too, a lot of drummers were quite round-shouldered. And Chick Webb, who was almost a hunchback, Dave Tuff was quite round-shouldered. Um, my mother was always on my case about straightening my back because she knew that's the cause of a lot of problems. A lot of guitarists having that strap all those years, their shoulders, you know, they do get round-shouldered too. A lot of instruments, actually every single instrument has some sort of uh, physical issue if you play it long enough, you know. Uh, I hear that violinists actually get quite deaf in this ear after all those years. Oh, my gosh. Of lip problems with, with brass instruments, mm -hmm. um, neck problems from hor uh, horns, you know, uh, saxes. You know, Michael Brecker used to have a, a big issue with, with his neck and his neck muscles, mm -hmm. so. Dizzy Gillespie, remember how his cheeks used to fill right up? I mean, he used that technique, you know, in a positive way. Um, now, with drummers, we had the, the, the back issue. And probably 90% of drummers that have been playing longer than 30 years have had some sort of back issue. So my mom was always on at me about that. So what did I do? I, I, I never forgot it. And thanks to rock and roll, I stopped my, holding my drum, left hand drumstick in the traditional way. I turned it over and played match grip because I thought it was much hipper. I also thought it was more, I don't know, uh, if you listen to you know African, uh, African tribal music, Burundi, nobody plays like this. Right. Play like that. Kodo drums in Japan, mm -hmm. always played like that. Xylophones. Marimba, yeah. it's a mad grip, right? Now, there's obviously, there's various techniques, but to me that made more sense. But what really made more sense was the setup of the drum kit. Now the snare drum can actually face you 
a little bit instead of facing away so you're bent over it. Mm-hmm. Now I can sit back and play much more comfortably. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing. The second thing was adding the double bass drum, the second bass drum. Instead of being slightly twisted every time you play, because we always set up with our bass drum facing directly ahead, which it just looks better. It always felt it looked weird when it was off to the side. But really, from a physical standpoint, it's really bad because you're half twisted and playing. Do you see what I mean? That's a great point, yeah. Always leaning on something. With double bass drum, you sit in the middle of the kit and there they are, the two. It's like riding a horse. Now, it's not exactly that, that because you have a hi-hat that you've got to try to get as close as you can to the, the kick pedal. So you're a little upsided, but it, with careful planning, and I used to take ages setting up my kit, you know, the distance between the two bass drums, you know, mm-hmm. which are obviously um, guided by the fact that you've got two tom-toms there. The smaller those tom-toms, the closer you can get the drums. But then small tom-toms don't have much impact, you know. I've always had what I call just normal-sized drums. You know, I have a 12 and a 13 in between. A 13 and a 14, which I did at one point, is just too much. Yeah. The bass drum's too wide for me. Anyway, I'm, I'm not very big, so, you know. And a 10 and a 12, it just sounds weedy. to me you've got to have that 12 and that 13 the 10 is that one up there which can sound pretty high it doesn't matter you know um and then on on you go so that way now i'm sitting in the middle of the kit i'm playing matched grip my back is straight that's already a a plus and then thing was swapping from right-handed to left-handed so when did that start when when did you feel inspired to develop that technique I uh, I saw Billy Colvin play at the Rainbow Theatre in 1974, around October. And I had to put a dep in at Jesus Christ Superstar, which was a Friday night. That's two shows, so it cost me a lot of money. And then uh, apparently uh, Billy was coming in from Montreux or from another gig. I can't exactly remember where. Montreux doesn't sound right. It's a wrong time of year. Um, and the gear was delayed. So they had to postpone the, the, the show a day. So that means I had to book the drummer for another night of two shows, a Saturday. <laughs> that really cost me cost me the whole week of money, pretty much. But there was no way I was ever going to miss that show because I was just, you know, to me, Billy was just a, a huge guiding light. At that time in my career, that was sound, the way he played. I mean, everything. It was just a beautiful mix of rock playing and jazz playing. And that's what I was really inspired by. Um, so I went to see the show and he came out. And by the way, average white band was the support band with Robbie playing. Oh, okay. So I got to see him play and Oh, what a beautiful drummer he was. Yeah. Oh, the groove. The, oh, lovely. And what's really interesting, which will surprise a lot of people. And I've always had a, a thing about this. So he's playing average white band music. It's funk back then. That's what we called it, funk or soul, you know. He was using a 24-inch Gretsch bass drum with the front head on. Wow. That's how we used to play. Yeah. Bernard Purdy 
used to, you know, have a smaller bass drum, but in the olden days, you'd have a front head, yeah. you know? That's how it was back in those days. You listen to those records, you know, Grady Tate. I mean, they started taking the front head off and then dampening it down, making it very dead, and that, which is fine, you know. But I was like, oh, wow, he's playing a 24-inch rock and roll sound. But it wasn't. It didn't sound like that. It sounded beautiful, you right, know. Right. And then Billy comes out with two 24-inch bass drums with front heads on, you know. And I was like, but, but he came out and he was playing left hand. I went, oh, shit. I had no idea, and it looked so cool. And I went, wow. And then I was on the, uh, a few months later, I was on the road with Chopin, which is my first rock and roll band, and we were supporting Return to Forever and ELO. And I sat right behind Lenny when he was playing, and he's playing Lefty too. And I go, what is with this, you know? This is great. And I'd only ever seen one drummer do that before, at a gig with my dad at London Airport, London Heathrow, we used to play for the the ground staff. Absolutely hilarious, you know, because we'd be playing in a building at the end of one of the runways, and they're having their annual ball, you know. And every twenty minutes, there'd be a huge, loud rush of jet engines going above the the building, you know. <laughs> it was hilarious. And the support band, I noticed the drummer was playing with his left hand on the hi hat. But at that time, I just thought, oh, what an ugly way to play drums because I only knew Buddy Rich way, you know, at that, because I was 12, 13, or 14, you know. But then I remembered that and I went, hang on a minute. So that's when I started. That was 1975. It's, it's amazing. I, I feel like there's been a resurgence of that. I see a lot of young players playing open that way. Yeah. And even, even last week, Kenny talked about. Uh, playing hurt so good and he was practicing with that open-handed thing and he was just messing yeah. around and john said what is that and he goes well i'm just he goes do that do that and that's how that song was tracked and right. then he was playing his fills with his right hand with his left hand keeping that going and i, I just i love those stories i love that you know yeah no, it's really amazing, and 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 watching you play, and and I have some friends, uh, a great drummer in town, Bryce Williams, uh, a great Nashville drummer, plays that way, and and his hi hat is very low. It's it's closer to the snare yeah. head. Yeah, yeah. There's also a tone. There's a recognizable sound in your playing uh, that I that I can hear even going back to the early '80s, or going back to even I can hear it on that Jeff Beck record. Uh, the tuning of the toms, the uh, sticking on the hi-hat, uh, these different types of things. It reminds me of, uh, you know, certain drummers that you hear, you instantly recognize them by their 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 feel, their, maybe a certain signature fill, uh, drum tuning, maybe a Steve Gadd, a tuning. Uh, I think of Chad Wackerman, like you just, you hear his toms, you just recognize those. How much intention is there in you bringing your signature sound to everything that you do? Um, well, that was really found in recording. Um, and that's why I was so into the whole process of recording. And that's why eventually I became an engineer. Um, when I was a kid, my mom was uh, uh, really interested in recording too. And she, I mean, I operated my first tape machine when I was three years old. It was a Ferragal uh, mono machine, so full track. Um, and she, I remember her recording John Glenn's uh, Three Orbits 
off the radio. Uh, and she showed me how to spool up a reel, uh, how to press play, how to press stop, how not to press the record button. <laughs> um, and so I was at a very early age familiar with two spools rotating at three and three quarter IPS, quarter inch tape, leader tape, a VU going like this, and the whole mechanism of, of this. Plus, I was taken into studios when I was really, really young on a regular basis. Um, it started off if my mom came to the session, then I would go if I was four or five, you know. Um, but I was probably not, you know, I was probably, probably went in for a little bit and then, you know, my mom would take me out when they were recording. But as early as definitely, I know when I was six years old, I would go along with my dad and sit in a chair behind the drummer. So I've been looking at microphone stands, microphones, cables, a red light and a green light and a clock and music stands and musicians since since I was born, wow. you know. So the, the studio environment was really like a second home to me. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, my dad would do broadcasts with the BBC, you know, every month. Um, and when I was not away at schools, I went to, to a boarding school, I would always go to the sessions um, and learn. Learn how to not make a noise, how not to cough, not open a sticky spoiled sweets, which we used to have in those days because it rustles a lot. You know, discipline again. Um, that's what he. That's what he taught me. And in those days, um, it, it, everything was mono for for Radio uh, Two back then for the BBC. Um, all the light programmes it used to be called before they had one, two, three, and four. The control room was probably not much bigger than this this office. They were quite small back then. They had maybe two tape machines in. They had a small console, which maybe had 12 inputs. They had one speaker cabinet, not two, one in the corner. Wow. Hanoi, a 15-inch dual concentric speaker and a, and a small amplifier. Probably the amplifier was only, cool in those days, I'd imagine it was barely 100 watts. I mean, much smaller than, than we have. Um, and uh, no headphones. And all the musicians play it just, you know, just listening like a, you know, like you would. And um, only the only people allowed in the control room were the engineer, the tape op, the producer. And then on, on playback, my dad, because he was the artist, if there was a singer on the session, the singer and the lead trumpet player. Wow. People in a small room, six people, you know. Uh, the rest of the band, they'd leave the door open and they would line up outside to listen. Isn't that amazing? That's how it used to uh, There was no way you would walk in that control room. That that was like, you know, that would be like uh, at the TSA, you know, uh, walking out of line, going, going, you know, going through immigration and not stop. That's, you know... <laughs> um, so um, it, it, it goes back to that, and it goes back to then my mom getting a couple of tape machines and, and then me taking a microphone and plugging it in and recording my drums with it and then finding another microphone ooh, and taping it to a, an old cymbal stand or a music stand and recording drums in stereo. 
when I was like, I don't know, eight years old or something. Wow. It was, was now she had stereo machines. She had two track machines, Revoxes, G36s. So, um, you know, cleaning the heads and uh, doing, ed- you know, editing leader tape between songs. And, you know, so I was doing that as a, as a kid. Yeah. Um, I even designed a, um, she had a patch bay, a very simple patch bay, just quarter inch jacks, not a GPO patch bay like, like studios would have. Um, and she was getting so tired of having to plug in all these cables. Um, and I said, hmm, let me think of something. And I designed a, a patch bay based on toggle switches. I don't know if you remember the old toggle switches. Uh, Apollo 13 was full of them. <laughs> yeah. But old Apollos had toggle switches and aeroplanes had them, you know. Um, lamps used to have them. You right, know? right. And so I designed, did a wiring diagram. So everything is pre-wired but switched with a toggle switch, which is only switching the, the hot wire, you know. It's all unearthed. It's just hot and cold. There's only audio, no voltage going through it. But what's amazing is I didn't get a huge mains hum because I wouldn't have understood about that. I didn't go to school, didn't learn about electronics, you know. I was just lucky. Mounted it on a, a, an, an aluminum doorstep, shaped like that, drilled all the holes out <laughs> and made of wooden ends and mounted it onto the front of the, you know, the shelving that she had. And I said, right, Mom, if you want to route this Revox to the speakers, you go click, 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 click. And if you want to route that tape recorder to that one, you go click, 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 click. <laughs> and it all worked. <laughs> it's amazing. Do you, do you yeah. still have that piece of gear? No, I don't have that piece of gear. I mean, you know, that's that's my that's my soldering station there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's a hobby, you know. Building studios, but kind of became a hobby. Uh, I love it. You know, love doing that stuff. But I'm sorry, I'm getting away from the the, the point of the question. So the idea was, I would do a session. And I tune my drums the best way I knew how at that time. And then I listen. And you know, most engineers were pretty happy with the sound. There were some that weren't. Uh, and that's more of a stylistic thing. I always like a pretty tight snare drum. And that was, you know, mid 70s. Everybody was going to this low, dead Los Angeles kind of sound, you know, uh, which I hated. Absolutely hated. I, you know, I grew up. Um, at that time, I would be listening to a lot of funk. I was listening to James Brown, uh, you know, Clyde Stubblefield. I was listening to Billy Carbon play on all sorts of recordings. Not not the Mahavishnu stuff, but more the straight funk stuff that he was doing. Um, 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 uh, Grady Tate, um, Quincy Jones, Bernard Purdy. Um, I mean, all, all, all those kind of players. And I was listening to the Ohio players the OJs, you know, all the sounds, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, you know, they were tight snare drums. Yeah. That was, that's what I, because I was more into funk than I was pop. And I always try to bring that funk thing to these sessions, even heavy metal sessions, which we, by the way, we didn't have, it was called rock, heavy rock back then. But I tried to bring that sound, more funky type of sound, to the session to make it groove more, you know? Um, and then I'd go and listen in the control room and go, why can't I hear the tom-toms? What's wrong? Well, we didn't have tom-tom mics back then. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Oh, for a long time. We, on a four-piece kit, 
you used to have four microphones. Bass, kit, kit. Uh, you cut out there for a second. Say that again. Bass drum, overheads. They have four microphones on most drum kits on most sessions. Bass drum, snare drum, kit left, kit right. Mm. And obviously before stereo, we, we had just one overhead. Mm. So when I recorded the BBC, it was just one overhead, one snare, one kick. Uh, and it would be a ribbons by STC uh, 30, 3048, 4038. I always get that mixed up. 3048, I think. Um, and then at a recording session, in terms of like an album recording session, everything was recorded stereo by the time I was doing those. Um, so we'd have two kit mics, you know, wherever they would be placed. And they picked up the Tom Toms and the hi hat. I remember one session they added a hi hat mic. I went, oh, wow, that's cool, you know. And then there was another, like Trident Studios, they used to mic up the TomToms. That was Ken Scott, Roy Thomas Baker, you know, those engineers. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, you know. And that's when I started going, okay, now I'm hearing the TomToms. But it was also a question of tuning because everybody was afraid of ring. And I was like, but that's how they project. So I took off all the damping and just let them ring and right. tuned them up. And that's when people started saying, wow, love those tom-toms. Can you tell the story of recording with the Pretenders in 82? There was an interesting... 80, I'm sorry? 85. 85. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and bringing in your kit after they had... You walked into the session and there was one bass drum in uh. the studio waiting for you. <laughs> Oh, this is this is actually quite quite interesting. So the engineer was Bob Clearmountain, who I had admired for quite a few years. When he became on the scene, I'd say eighty one, eighty two at the hit fact, at the power station, and then I met him in eighty three up in Vancouver at Little Mountain Studios. He had just finished recording the first Brian Adams record. And nobody knew who Brian Adams was at that time. Um, so I was very well aware of Bob and loved you know, the sound of his mixes and his, his records. And the producer, the co-producer was with, with Bob uh, was Jimmy Iovine. So I turned up to the session and I was in Air Studio One and there's another engineer, which is Bob's kind of assistant engineer. He kind of set up the board and you know got, got the basic sounds and i walk in i went hey hi good morning how you doing and i look through the the long they had a very wide uh, window there and i'm looking into the studio and i don't see my drum kit i just see this one bass drum set up on a riser with a couple of microphones i go um where's where's my drum kit and right at that point my drum tech ravi came in I said, Ravi, why haven't you set the drum kit up? And he said, uh, well, um, that, you see, that's the problem. I said, well, what? And then the engineer, I don't remember his name, he said, well, we really like this bass drum. You really like this bass drum. I'm very happy for you, but it's not my bass And I can't set up my kit around that bass drum. And it's going to be a totally different sound. Uh, no. And he went, well, you know, Bob really was like, I don't care. 
you've asked me to play. I need my equipment. I need my instrument. So he kind of, so he took the bass drum down, the microphone down, and he's like a little worried because Bob's not there yet. And then Ravi starts setting up my drum kit and, and you know, two bass drums, seven tom-toms, gong drum. I don't know the octobans. I used to set them up sometimes. It, it depends, you know. And then Bob turns up and, hey, Bob, hey, dude, like, we've never met, you know, we, we met for the first time. He's looking out, he went, oh, what happened to the bass drum? <laughs> and I said, well, Bob, it's not my sound. It's not my bass drum. And I can't even set up the rest of the kit because my kit is, I think it was on a, no, it wasn't on a rack. It was 85, right. So um, he came out and he's looking at the whole drum kit and he's going, do you need all this? I said, well, normally, yeah. He said, well, I use two mics on every tom-tom. Because what he was doing was he was putting a 421 over the top and putting whatever he had at 57 on the bottom. He liked to mic the bottom head and flip the phase of the, the bottom mic, which I still, I think is unnecessary personally. But hey, he gets his sound and it's up to the engineer to, if it's the way they get their sound, then that's fine. But we have a problem. That's a big drum kit, even in Air Studios, which has, you know, probably, I think it was probably about 64 channels on, on the board. Um, no way, ain't going to happen. They're not even going to have enough mic stands. They're already pinching mic stands from the other studios. Cables, not to mention microphones. <laughs> so I said, all right, I'll take Tom number one away and Tom number seven away. How about that? So I've got five Toms, one, two, three racks, two floors and a gong drum. <sighs> okay, so we start getting sounds. And, you know, I mean, as long as the fallback system is switched on and they're sending, you know, some sort of mix to it, you can hear pretty much what's going on. And, you know, after that many years in the studio, you kind of know what's going on, you know, if it sounds awful, if it sounds quite good. It was sounding great. It was hitting the kick drum, boom, boom. I had front heads on, probably with holes. Um, yeah, probably. And uh, but everything else is you know ringing away like crazy and high pitched snare and but still a six and a half inch snare not a piccolo you know a nice fat sound but and I'm playing and okay can you hit some you know so we go around the tom toms I said right back to the snare yeah right can you play a groove and so I'm playing I'm going why isn't he saying hey come on have a listen sounds great why isn't he saying that you know most people do but. Um, can you hear the kick drum again? Yeah, okay. And I'm going, it sounds great in the phones. I'm going, wow. And I could tell he's, I mean, he's a wonderful engineer, you know. But he was confused. He wasn't used to a drum kit sounding like that. And I've had that many, many times throughout my career. Jimmy Iovine comes in, because I can see him, and he's walking from the entrance door and he's walking over to, there's a little producer's room on that side. And he stops halfway and he's listening because I'm playing. And he, he goes and he he, press, he presses the talk back, which, of course, you know, I stopped playing. He says, hey, Simon, great sound. Love that snare drum sound. And I can see Bob goes, really? <laughs> and then he switches the talk back off and then I see him, they're, they're talking 
And Bob's like, I said, um, all right, let's lay some down. And so I play a little bit and I go, well, come on in. And I go on in and I listen. I said, yeah, that's pretty good. I said, let me, let me hear those toms. And of course they were great. I mean, he got it beautifully. And I went, and we might've done something. I'm not even sure we did. I went, there you go. And Bob was like, because he wasn't used to hearing a drum kit that sounded like a, a grand piano type thing, you know, like a, an instrument. Right. You referred to this. This is my instrument. I mean, that's yeah. to me, that says it all. This is my thing. And like I said, when I, when I first saw you on that Pete Townsend video, I'm like, man, there's this beautiful drum set and this great energy and there's groove. And, you know, I was, I was, I was young, but I was equating big drum set with, just this very much like Billy Cobham thing, but I mean, but 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 lots of notes and, but man, it, it's not always necessary. You know, you can have this big drum set with these big sounds. You also mentioned another time about how your toms resonate on the bass drums. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, they resonate whether they're attached to the bass drums or not. So this whole thing of taking them off the bass drum is is bullshit. It really doesn't. It's how you tune it. If you don't tune it well, yes, it's going to go boom every time you hit a kick drum. But it'll do the same with the snare. It'll do the same with the tom-tom next to it. You know, it's you've got to be sympathetic in your tuning. And I will admit, it's very difficult. Even now, sometimes you get into a room and you've got a problem with a frequency in that room that's just like really present. Ooh, it's tricky. You've got to try to tune the drums away from that. Um but the whole point is, it, it if you take those drums away, that snare drum will sound totally different. Yes, you know. And also, I I grew up in an era where we only had you know a couple of microphones, so I'm still like that. I want that drum kit. Even if I place one microphone over the top, it's got to sound great. Meaning the cymbals mustn't be too loud. A lot of people choose cymbals way too heavy for the drum kit. They play them too loud. That's another thing. Uh, the toms, one tom might be booming, the other one might be quite dead. And that used to always drive me nuts about using a double-ply head, like an Evans head or an Emperor, because I'd get a great sound out of the 12, and then the 13 would be dead. Mm. It, it just doesn't make any 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 sense, you know? Um, so it's all got to resonate in a very sympathetic way. Just like a piano does. And are you uh, using ambassador, clear ambassadors on the top and bottom? I've done for years on every single drum, except for the snare drum, has a has a coated uh, uh, head ambassador, and the gong drum has a timpani head. And yeah. That's that's it. It's but that, it, to me, is the only way to get real consistency and a nice live tone. Um, as as loud as you want that drum to be, it's going to be the loudest it will ever be with with that with that head. Um, which doesn't mean you have to play it loudly. In fact, recordings are much better if you don't play so loud. Right. And and recording has been a topic, a hot topic in the last couple of years as home studios are growing and more yeah. people are experiencing recording, whether it's at home or, or, or otherwise. So it's been a topic here on the podcast quite a bit. 
and a couple things you were alluding to, not overplaying the cymbals, um, just getting a great sound at the source, you know, yeah. starting with great sounds, um, mm-hmm. just all these things and not overplaying, not choking the drum by playing too loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And the other thing is, you know, the, so back in those days, it was hard to get the tom-toms to speak in, in a lot of recordings, mainly because, you know, they weren't mic'd, but even when they were mic'd, the attitude of the engineer was, it was kind of, they weren't used to hearing them uh, so present, so they maybe had their gains a little bit low. So what I used to do was when I did a drum fill and I played the toms, I would then really hit the toms harder. Um, I also do this thing where I, I um, and this has just been a development of playing over the years, I often increase the volume as I go around the fill. Yeah. You know, start off medium, you know, MF, then to F, and, you know, so there's a, there's a flow to the drums. When mixing, you know, I think people get a little bit too concerned with, oh, there's one tom-tom, is, is that loud? But this one, oh, that's a bit louder, we better pull him down. Or oh, that's not loud enough. Yes, you're right. But actually, it's okay if they're not all the same level. Yeah. It gives you a sense of a 3D thing, you know? Right. It's not, I mean, I guess that gets quite deep into the mixture of the playing and more the, the mixing side of it. But um, as a player, it's your dynamics on the drum kit that have to dictate the way it sounds. And, and, and you're referring to dynamics at a micro level where, and, and, and not just, well, we're going to play loud on the chorus, we're going to play soft on the verse. There is dynamics that happen within the context of a drum fill. I, I, I spoke to a buddy of mine who was a guest on recently. We went off on a um, Carlos Vega tangent and oh. how he phrases things. And that was one of the things that I recognized about his playing was playing this fill could be do-do-do-do-do-do. There was this dynamic in this phrasing much the way a really great violin player would play or a piano player. Uh, My son is learning classical guitar. And when he starts putting in those dynamics on a micro level, I'm like, there's that phrasing, there's that music that separates you from your buddies that are just playing the notes. And why can't we as drummers do the same thing? We have so many wonderful examples of that. Well, we can. That's the thing. Yeah. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it's not on most drummers' radar, I guess, to do that. I'll tell you an interesting story about Carlos. So when I first moved to LA, which was end of 92, um, I was then starting to get to know people and I would go to a couple of the clubs in, in the valley, you know, in the studio city. One of them was Lavalie. And um, the uh, the gig was, was David Garfield. He was playing. Of course, I knew David by then. And, and I went and uh, Carlos was playing. Jimmy uh, Johnson was playing bass. And I think, who's playing horn? Uh, Larry Klimas, I think, was playing horn. And... Um, Anyway, uh, uh, Creechy invited me up to play. And I'd met Carlos because he was a good friend of Mike Picaro's. And I was, I put a, together a studio for Mike, actually, in his, in his next-door neighbor's back garden. 
And uh, this this is when you were moved to the states to work with Toto. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and I I joined Toto and everything, and yeah. So I went up, and of course, when you sit in, you know, it's like, oh boy, what's this drum kit going to be like? You know, is uh, is the bass drum pedal going to need some Herculean Roman carbs, you know, to push it down? And is the tom tom's going to sound like you know that? Yeah. Um, and I sat down with the kit and. What I noticed was he had all um, ambassador clear heads, top and bottom. And when I played the toms, they were like, oh, they sound like my drums. They sound like tom-toms. And I went, wow. And I went, Carlos was, we had a very similar concept. I mean, obviously the kit was much smaller. I think it was the DW. I I don't really remember what it was. but, uh, But I did notice one of the few drummers to use clear ambassadors and to tune them. In, in a way where they sing. And so it was a pleasure to play that drum kit. Um, it's also my first time I played with Jimmy Johnson. It was like, wow, you know, it was great. It was a very, very exciting time. Uh, but that was just a little story about Carlos and uh, uh, love him. He used to come over to the studio uh, when I was working in it and hang with Mike and we'd chat. And it was lovely. Lovely man. That's amazing. I want to talk about Protocol. You've got this new record that's coming out. I think it's February 4th is... Yep, that's the release date. Can you tell me about the the production of this record, maybe the process, the the um, the, uh, the lineup of this, and, and what was the motivation for this record? Was no, Quick question, was, was Protocol 4, was that all done remotely, or was that in the studio? No. No, it was done remotely. Okay. I, I pay the extra money to get everybody in the room and play together. That's the only way I'll ever record my own records. Mm-hmm. Um, I just can't stand it. You know, it's, it's, it, that kind of music has to have, um, and it has to have, you have to be able to change the arrangement like this, like that, you know, cause somebody has got to, Hey, why did we do this? Great. That sounds wonderful. You know, to me, that's, that's the essence of making a good record, yeah. you know? So no, uh, I, they're, they're all done live. Um, so, uh, which, you know, it, it, it makes it, it does make it an expensive project, you know, it's a lot more involved. Um, and protocol five, this last record, of course, even more so because I don't have a studio anymore. Not, not the kind of studio I used to have. I mean, I have, I now have my control room, uh, in this house, uh, so I can, I can mix, I can record too. Uh, if I do want to record, I set the drums up actually in the, in the, in the dining room, <laughs> in the just one room. Um, and it's actually, I mean, it sounds good. Um, but it's not, I don't have a studio, uh, in terms of a live room control room scenario anymore. Um, in the last three years, is it three years, four years actually coming up, uh, since the fire, uh, I'm moving to Ojai, um, <clears throat> I've been using the local studio here in Ojai, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's interesting because after so many years of engineering all my own sessions, um, now I have an engineer. And after, the f- okay, the first few times I was engineering, he was assisting and I was kind of doing my thing, but then he would be running the session because I'm out there playing. But he's such a great engineer. And he also totally got, you know, after a couple of times, totally got the way that I like to record a drum kit. And and now I just when I when I have a session, I book the studio, 
um, my drum tech comes up, the drum kit's stored right next door in a, in a storage facility, takes the drum kit, sets it up, takes, brings all my microphones in, uh, and the engineer, Jason, Jason Mariani, he goes and sets up all the mics, cables it all up, puts up a couple of his own mics too, and maybe he'll even do something just for fun. And when I turn up, I make a cup of tea, and then it's all ready to go. I don't even operate Pro Tools. He, he does the whole thing. I mean, I'll step in and do a couple of things, you know, but it's like going back to the 70s for me. I'm spoiled. It's one. I don't have to engineer anymore. <laughs> so so were you planning on building, rebuilding your own studio, but as a result of this situation, you're like, you know what? I'm good. Um, yes, I was, yeah. I mean, uh, the the uh, what got destroyed were three structures, the house, a guest house, and uh, it actually wasn't a garage. It was a it was a a, 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 a carport, you know. Um, but you're not allowed to build those anymore. So uh, the result of rebuilding because of code, uh, the rebuilding prices are you know way more, um, and that's what's been the problem for a lot of people replacing their houses because. You know, the house was built, my house was built in 64, and therefore the code, nothing was up to code, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to rebuild a house, I mean, just, the, you know, you have to have an architect, plans, the plans have to go to the county, and and it's incredibly expensive even before you dig one hole. Yeah. You've already spent thousands because, um, and everybody's, you know, experiencing this problem. Um I mean, the county, yeah, they helped a bit, you know, but it, but basically I couldn't build the third structure, which was the, the guest house. Instead of guest house, it would have been a, a studio. Uh, it was just way too costly. So uh, I've got more land, <laughs> empty land, and um, had to just go with it and uh, converted one of the rooms into a control room. Um, so so that's, that's the situation there. But the... Other side of it is at my age, it is really rather nice to just go to a studio with an engineer, you know, studio that sounds great, big room, which you would never have here, lot nice ambience, and and go in as a musician, not have to worry about that stuff anymore, you know. Right. So I'm more of a producer in those respects. I produce my tracks for the artist that I'm working with, who is actually the real producer, but, you know, before he gets the track, I make sure it's exactly how I think it should be for that song, which that's what he's paying me for, not just to play drums, but to, you know, give the right twist on it, you know, which might be very different to what the artist is thinking mm-hmm. he's going to get. Uh, and then I send an MP3 and they get it, and most of the time they absolutely love it. You know, sometimes they have requests, and I keep, you know, keep a record of which snare drum I used because of the time change in uh, certainly to Europe or the East Coast, we're moving on to another track before they've even heard that first track, you know. So anyway, that that's the process. Um, and when it came to recording Protocol 5, I had to hire the studio, and which are expenses I didn't really have before except for the regular expenses of running a studio, you know. Right. Which, so, <clears throat> yeah, it's a it's an expensive process to record a, a something live, but on the other hand, you don't take as long. 
This is true. This is true, especially you have your engineer running and you're not doing that all that yourself. Yeah. Well, well, no, no, I don't even mean, even when I was engineering uh, my, my records, like Protocol 4, mm-hmm. Protocol 3, Protocol 2, plus a whole bunch of other records. Um, I mean, I got so used to engineering and playing and producing at the same time. You know, it was like, a lot of people that do that. It's just a thing you do. You know, When I walk, get off the drum kit and walk through and go to the control room, I'm no longer the drummer. I'm listening as a producer would listen, which is hopefully kind of how the the listener would hear it for the first time. And if there's something I don't like that I'm doing, I tell myself, I don't like what you're doing. (laughs) Change that snare drum. It's not the right sound. What the hell are you doing there? Totally wrong, you know? So, But you get used to kind of producing yourself. It it does take years, obviously. But, um, yeah, so that, that was fine. But with... Protocol 5, it was a very interesting experience because now I'm no longer getting the sounds. I'm walking in and going, hmm, bass sounds a bit mushy. Let's let's make it more distinct, you know, add a bottom end to it. Guitar, a little dull. Let's brighten it up. Let's, let's try that uh, Fender Twin instead of the Deluxe, you know. Uh, and Alex, you want to try that other guitar on this? You know, that those kind of decisions. Yeah. And they go and, uh, uh, and, and Jason would go out and move the mic over to another, um, or two mics actually, over to another amp and make sure cables were, you know, all working, then come and get the sound and then we see how that is. Yeah. Same with the horn. So it's a slightly, slightly different process. I had a little bit more time to make a cup of tea, which is good, <laughs> and a sandwich. Uh, and it was more production, you know, just keeping an eye on stuff. Um a little bit difficult because of COVID. N- nobody is playing as well as they should be or would normally be if they were working normally, myself included. We're all under par. It's interesting you say that. I, uh, uh, Nashville is open back up despite all the normal restrictions that I think the world is trying to adhere to. So a lot of us, if you want to are working again uh, as much as we were before, um, which isn't always great for our health uh, or then, but um, that's another podcast altogether. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is, it is really fascinating to hear how um, this time off has affected us in, yeah. you know, and it's fascinating to hear you say that. Yeah. Oh, I feel really, I'm, I'm really on the back foot. I haven't played a live show for, ages i mean i did a couple of little club dates and they were i was a little actually to be quite honest i was a little nervous of doing one show at the big potato um aside from the covid thing i was nervous about playing i was thinking shit i I don't know if i can get through a whole set you know or two sets stamina wise and uh you know um but it was really good to do it because i was actually okay you know, I knew what I couldn't do, you know, I'm a little bit out of practice because I'm not, I have to be out there playing. I'm not a good practicer. Never was. I, I, I yeah. Was, but as soon as I, you know, moved out of the, the house I grew up in and couldn't, couldn't play a drunk anymore because it was an apartment, um, I was always playing sessions or going out on the road and stuff. So these two years have been, you know, quite damaging from, from that point of view. Um in the bigger picture, though, I think from uh, another point of view, I think it's been a great break for 
all of us to, you know, not be getting on a plane every two weeks. And I haven't suffered from jet lag for ages. It's beautiful. Um, it's a different thing, you know. Um, but it's been very tough because all of us have had to realign everything and, you know, from a financial point of view as well. Uh, it's been incredibly tough. But I was lucky uh, to have uh, to have a lot of session work come in, which was great. Um, and a, a lot of other musicians that I spoke to, um, they had the same thing too. They were very lucky that they'd had that history of making records for so long that when it came time for some people to make their record, because finally they were able to, they weren't able to go to the road to, to, to work. Yeah. So a lot of the records, I think, we've all been doing have not really been by professional musicians. They've been by musicians who either were professionals or always wanted to be, but realized that, you know, they were better off doing a, another gig. Mm -hmm. And now they're sitting at home and they've managed to put away, save up this budget to, to record a record. And then all of a sudden these emails start coming in. Would you play on my record? And, yeah. I think we're very from that point of view, and and, it, and it's always wonderful to record new music. I love it. Yeah. Well, although my, my gigs, you know, shut down for quite some time, I recorded more than I ever have uh, in the last couple of years, and it's been it's been an interesting experiment and discovery of what it is that I want to do more of or less of and you think you know because the uh, the grass is always greener and like man I want to record more and then you do and. I want to play live more, and then you you know it's it's and, and I don't miss the you know the early flights and and all those those kinds of things as well. And then also, just relating to you as a composer, I, I'm doing more writing uh, in the last couple of years. I mean, I've got one drum set and two keyboards set up in this room, and I've got a couple racks full of guitars that are getting ready because I've got a son that plays guitar, so I've got access to all these things to do more right. of thinking about more music that I want to do. Uh, yeah. So yeah. that, with, with COVID, that has been the silver lining, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, uh, I think a lot of people have, have felt that too, you know, given given the situation, you balance it up and you go, you know, actually, and also for families, I think it's, it's changed the whole uh, dynamic too, you know. Uh, it's brought back a little bit of the family. They're not all so separated in different rooms. You're actually, you know, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think we were losing a lot of that. Um, back to the uh, Protocol 5, just briefly, though. Um, it's a five-piece. Um, I have I brought back a horn player into the into the mix. Um, and it's uh, I'm very, very happy with the record. It was uh, <clears throat> tough for everybody because we haven't been out playing live. Uh, we haven't been playing that much. So everybody felt it. I mean... Mm. I think the only person that didn't so much was Jacob Sesney, the horn player, because he's been very active throughout this whole thing. So he's always playing. Um, but I think for everybody else, it, it was, you know, it was like a, a at times a bit of a struggle. But we, we got it. We got it in there. And I'm very happy with uh, uh, certainly all my performances and every everybody else's performance. So uh, it's, I think... I love it. Yeah. What is the plan? What is your intention for after it drops? Well, you know, when we recorded in June, 
uh, last year, 2021. I was hoping that I'd be out in Europe in March doing a tour. That's not going to happen because now Omicron, you know, we had Delta and now we have Omicron and who knows what the next variant's going to be. I'm hoping that I'll be able to tour Europe in the fall because Europe's my, really it's my biggest uh, audience and we get to play bigger gigs and, and we also get to, you know, uh, financially, it, it works out better. Say, I'm able to do a tour. In the States, it's very hard mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, clubs just don't pay uh, enough to be able to do it. Wow. I'm doing three shows at Catalina's Bar Grill in uh, Los Angeles, 21st, 22nd, 23rd of January. That's like a CD launch party. So we start rehearsing on the 17th, which means i got to start rehearsing these songs because <laughs> some of them are not easy. They're pretty tricky. Uh, so i got to start working. I think we all, you know, I just sent out charts actually to everybody yesterday. And, and I think, okay, we'll start getting into it. <laughs> um, and then we've got, um, we're playing Yoshi's in Oakland on the 9th of February. Um, I was trying to set up an East Coast tour, but just couldn't make the figures work. So I think for the moment we just we just wait um, and hope people you know get the album. Where can people find the record, and where can people find the dates that you're performing? Um, well, uh, website, uh, social media, uh, Alliance is my um, uh, distribution company, so they deal. They put it into the record stores if you know whenever there is one. Amazon. Uh, all sorts of different areas of, you know, being able to buy a record. Yeah. The obvious. And the downloads. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. People are like, Matt, why are you asking that question? That should be obvious. <laughs> <laughs> One last question for you. I realize so much has changed in the industry since you began and, and so much of what you experienced has hard to apply to today's environment. But if there's something that has remained true and that you could advise to a young or new player or even experienced players alike, something that has remained true from the day you started playing that applies as, as great advice for drummers of you know all sorts. I think what's really important is to be open and listen to many different styles of music. One of the big differences between growing up in, in Britain and being in the States, we had, you know, only four radio stations. We had Radio Luxembourg as well. There's a, there was a, a, no, Luxembourg, Radio Caroline. These were the kind of the pirate stations. Um, so we didn't have radio stations that were, um, that only played a certain style of music. We had one radio station that would play popular music. And that could be anything from my dad's music to Dixieland to uh, Black Sabbath. Uh, 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 The Wailers. Hmm. Um, uh, I mean, Presley, Elvis, Elvis Presley. I mean, you had a really wide range of styles of music. So we grew up with that. In the States radio stations were much more specific musically, you know? So you only, you only got to see and listen to one type of music. Um, people, um, they, they, they used to comment, probably still do, 
they think of me as a rock drummer, right? Especially moving to the States back in the 90s. I was booked for a session uh, who my manager, the, the, the Toto's manager, was managing another artist, David Benoit, who's is smooth jazz. And he was asking Mark Hartley, uh, you know, who, 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 who should I get on drums? And Mark said, well, why don't you try Simon? And they were, but, but he's a rock drummer. <laughs> Mark went, no, he's not. <laughs> he's a lot of jazz. He grew up playing jazz. Really? You know, so there's this kind of thing that in the States is a little bit more compartmentalized. It's a little narrower. In, in England, we learn to play pretty much everything. Yeah. So, uh, and I think that's a very good thing, different to be able to try to play different styles even if you don't like them, it's good to have an experience of doing that. I think it's invaluable because I think it, it, it widens your vocabulary. I think when you rehearse uh, different styles, you discover that there's aspects of it that you do appreciate and then love growing up. I mean, when you, you're like, oh, I've, I should learn to play this swing beat. And then what's this band and what's this artist? And next yeah. thing you know, you're a, you're a jazz fan. Yeah. That's, that's it. I mean, you know, you don't have to end up being brilliant at playing that particular style, but I think it's just having the knowledge of what's entailed, that sound. How does it sound? I think that's the thing. That, and then the other thing is, of course, sound. <laughs> the tone out of a cymbal, how a different stick will make that cymbal sound differently. Yeah. You can't change cymbal. So the only way you can change it you can change it a lot in your playing, but if you try it with a different stick, with a different beat, it will even change. So when I play straight ahead, I don't use my signature sticks, which have a round bead. A round bead doesn't actually sound very good on, on a sim on a ride cymbal, mm. but it's loud. So therefore, it will cut through a guitarist playing. But if there's no guitarist and there's only upright bass, acoustic piano, and a horn player, it's going to be way too brush. So I use a different stick. It's a Promark stick, but it has a it has a bead, acorn. And it's a much sweeter tone. It's quieter. And then if I vary the way I play it, it can change the tone so drastically. It's amazing. And the same with the drums, too. The round beads are going to have a nice impact, and that's really why I use them. But if I use the beads, they're not as loud, a little thinner sounding, but in some respects, more musical for that type of music. Yeah, of course. And just that, that attention to detail in the studio has got to make a world of difference to an engineer and a producer's ear. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you go into a studio, set your drums up and engineer mics it up, but you play really quietly and he gets his levels based on how you're playing, right? And you really discipline yourself, right? Don't hit any rim shot, just hit the, you know? And you will go and you'll hear your drum kit like you've never heard it before. Now, of course, if you hit hard, you know, you're going to, well, if it's a really expensive, good mic, uh, mic amp, no, you won't distort it. It'll probably sound great. But, uh, but if it's not, it will distort it. But it would also, um, you know, your level will be too high and the engineer will get pissed off with you. Right. But if you try that as an experiment, just say, I'm going to play like, like uh, you know, Bernard Purdy or Grady Tate, because they don't play very loud, you know. Uh, you'd be amazed at the different sound that you'll get. 
Yeah, and, and I think the challenge is 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 creating is creating those great tones by you know playing at a soft level, but with intensity, depending on the style of oh, music. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The intent. The, the hardest thing is to play quietly, intensely. Yeah, you know, habit. Uh, this was pointed out to me years years ago. My first visit to New York, nineteen seventy four. I don't know who the drummer was, but he was doing sessions with Quincy Jones. That's all I knew. And he pointed out to me, he said, he, he came and said hello. Because obviously, I was 17 years old. And he said, when you play quietly, you slow down. Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a quite uh, a common habit. Right. Right. Um, now, there's something very interesting. When you hear a fade on an end of a song, it sometimes sounds like it's speeding up. To me, anyway. That's interesting. That- probably, probably because your brain wants to slow down because maybe physically you're playing slower when you're playing softer. Yeah. I don't know. Not weird. So that's uh, that's one to be really careful of is uh, is aware of maintaining your tempo um, when you're playing at a loud volume and when you're playing at a quiet volume. I've been restructuring my practice time as I'm trying to get back up to speed these days. You know, so. I've got this great soundproof room, and one of the things that I've been doing recently is play something, you know, and then not changing tempos, but changing dynamic levels, and even choosing one limb to change the dynamic level. That was a a great drummer here in town, Derek Phillips, was at a a master class with Tony Williams back in the day, Mm -hmm. and that was a suggestion that Tony had. You've got four-way independence going on. Take one of those limbs and drop it down and change the dynamic and then bring it back up while maintaining the same dynamics with the other three limbs and try that. And man, I tell you, that to maintain just a good time, feel, a good groove has given me has given me balance and and a confidence on the gig because mm-hmm. you're playing. Uh, it, 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 you're able to employ those dynamics like we were talking in the micro level without mm-hmm. rushing a drum fill or slowing down. Yeah, exactly. Um, right at the beginning of COVID, I remember uh, an English drummer called me. Um, we were chatting and he, he said, uh, said, well, <clears throat> you know, really like to uh, play but I can't, you know, it, it, it's too loud. And I said, set up your drum kit and play quietly. Because that's what I was doing. I was in a rental uh, place in, uh, in Ohio while this was being built last year. And um, the year before, 2020. Uh, and that's what I was doing. I was just learning to play real quiet. It's a whole Great. different skill set. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a very important one. So those, those are things which have never changed. That's great. Yes, they've never changed, and they'll be with it. Uh, they'll be with us as long as you're playing an instrument. Are there interests out? This will be my last question. I'm so, I appreciate your time, man. Um, <laughs> is there something? Is there an interest, a hobby, uh, an activity that, aside from music, that you enjoy? Maybe something that somebody that we don't know about, Simon Phillips. Um, well, some people know about this motor racing. I used to. Uh, race cars. I used to race Formula Ford 1600 when I was in England. Um, I really kind of, I stopped that when I left England because there was really no way to do it out in, in it, once here. It was 
more complicated. Um, uh, it's a costly sport too, you know. So, um, but that is my uh, probably passion: getting into a car. Go karting is is would be the next step to that. But fortunately, we lost our go kart track uh, a couple of years ago, which was uh, in Oxnard, about I don't know twenty miles away or something. So that's a bit of a shame. So not able to do that at the moment. When we're touring, sometimes I'll take the band, we'll go and, you know, go to a go-kart, indoor go-kart thing and have fun. But it's not the same with electric cars. It's just in, inside, not just not the same. So um, what I've actually done, funnily enough, uh, just two little hobbies I've uh, taken up, again, which I used to do as a kid. One is shooting, target shooting. Um, I just got myself a, a, a .177 caliber air rifle. Um, and uh, and that's really really fun. And archery, I used to do as a kid too. So I just got a bow and uh, you know some arrows and guard and a tab and and uh, built a target out of uh, straw bales. And so just a couple of little hobbies, just because I just felt I I need I need a hobby. I need to be able to just get away from mixing a record for you know just a couple of hours, go outside and get everything out. And, pump the egg and up and, uh, you know, just shoot a few rounds and, uh, um, yeah, just to empty the brain a little bit. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I feel like, uh, that's not a common question I have, but I feel like it's really important for people to know, like we, we're all our headspace. We're constantly thinking about music and drums and it's like, yeah. we need to know that the, 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 the people that, that inspire us and that we look to, um, they have lives, and there's things that that they pull from to uh, to inspire them to create the the music that we all enjoy and the kind of drumming that we aspire to yeah. to be more yeah. like. So, yeah, no, I appreciate you <laughs> feeling that that odd question. Um, well, man, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, it's a, a pleasure to speak with you and to see you and meet you. Um, I'm excited about this new record, February fourth. Simon-Phillips.com uh, is the website. People can go to kind of keep an eye on things and what's going Ooh, on. There's a, a, there'll be soon, very soon, there'll be a new website going up. Okay. Yeah. Same address? Same address, yeah. yeah. Okay. But to totally revamped. Wonderful. Simon-Phillips.com. Keep an eye on that. Um, all the social medias, all that good stuff to subscribe to. But um, Simon, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, I can't wait to hear the new music. And um, yeah. thanks so much for chatting with us. All right, Matt. Keep in touch with us, but thank you so much. And um, hopefully we'll get to see you sometime live very soon. Hope so. Okay. Thank you very much. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it, my conversation with the amazing Simon Phillips. We can't thank Simon enough for starting our 2022 off strong and talking about his latest recording coming out here February 4th. The interstitial music that you heard in this episode was from that brand new record. So February 4th is the full version of the record. Uh, I can't believe that Simon said that they were uh, a little under par for their performance or whatever, just just alluded to the fact that they weren't at the top of their game during this recording. It, 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 that boggles the mind, but there you go. That's, uh, that's Simon Phillips. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with drummer George Flutus. 
George is a jazz drummer based out of Chicago, is also an aficionado of John Bonham, so much so that he was a featured guest on one of the more recent episodes of Drum History with Bart Vanderzee. I encourage you to check that out. Uh, one of the five podcasts that are part of this Drum Click network that we're so honored to be a part of as well. I'm recording this voiceover on January 25th, 2022. If you are in the Nashville area this weekend, Saturday, the 29th, my co-host Zach Albetta will be performing with vibraphonist Nick Mancini at Rudy's Jazz Room starting at 11 p.m. Nick actually was a guest on this podcast back on episode 90, I believe, with Zach interview him. So they're going to be performing. Uh, I'm going to be doing some country music until about 10 p.m., and then I'm going to make my way over to heckle him. So uh, just a side note there. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Stay safe, and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.